sermon text this evening is 1 Samuel 26, 13 through 25. 1 Samuel 26, 13 through 25. Verse 13. <clears throat> then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. David called to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For, the one, of, for, for one of the people came to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die because you did not guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was at his head. Then Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, the king. He also said, Why then is my Lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my, my lord the king listen to the words of, this, of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord. For they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord. Saying, go and serve other gods. Now then... Do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. David replied, Behold the spear of the king. Now let one of your young men come over and take it. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me from all distresses. Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. The word of the Lord. When liberal scholars read 1 Samuel 26, and when they compare it to 1 Samuel 24, they say it's just two accounts of the same event. But any good historian knows and any good parent knows, and any good teacher knows, that history does repeat itself. In 1415, John Huss came on the scene. John Huss began to preach the gospel. And when John Huss preached the gospel, they burned him at the stake. One hundred years later, another Hussite came on the scene. His name was not John Huss, his name was Martin Luther. But he was called a Hussite because he preached the gospel. And they did try to burn him at the stake but that never happened. God protected him from that. There were two battles at Bull Run in the Civil War. And here, 
Here are two different episodes in which David is face to face with Saul. One time in a cave and one time from across a gorge. And I think we will fill in some of the blanks here and remind you where we've been. Last time in the sermon we preached, the first part of 1 Samuel 26, we entitled it, When History Repeats Itself. And the question is, did David learn when history repeated itself? A good teacher, the Lord is a good teacher. He's a wise teacher. He takes us through material over and over and over again to make sure we've learned our lesson. The question is, did David learn? And we said last time that David learned to be patient. Number one, he learned to be patient. Number two, we said that David learned to imagine how God might work in his behalf. He was thinking, God, how was God going to do this? Is God going to take, how's Saul going to take, God going to take Saul off the scene so that I can finally sit on the, on the throne? The third thing we said that David was learning also was to obey the clearly revealed will of God. David doesn't know how God will secretly work, but he does know he's not to kill the king or violate the sixth commandment. And we talked about the fact that we too, when we don't know everything God is doing, we are to obey those things that are clearly taught to us in scripture. Well, I want to add to, to this uh, list of lessons uh, three more. When history repeats itself, let's learn three more things. Number one, learn how God encourages you. How is David encouraged? One commentary said, the spear of Saul makes the point. <laughs> That's a good, I like that. The spear makes the point. Well, how does the spear make the point? Well, think about the spear of Saul. Three times he tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. One time he tried to pin his, his own son Jonathan to the wall with a spear. The Saul, y'all remember all those times we've read and Saul's sitting with his men and he's always got his spear in his What's wrong with this guy? He's always got the spear in his hand. Do you carry spears around at the house? I, I don't. I don't. I think knives are cool, but I don't carry them around all the time. You know? Evan took me somewhere the other day, and I looked at a, at a knife, and it cost $500. I was going, that's really cool. That's a guy thing. You know, but we don't carry these things around. He's carrying, he's carrying a spear around. It represents, though, to him his power. It represents his tyranny. And it makes the point of how God encouraged David. Let me show you. Remember David and Abishai, and I think it's important to remember Abishai is that mighty man who killed 300 men with a spear in one battle. These two men go slithering down from their height. They slither down into the valley where everybody in the whole of Saul's group of men are sound asleep. They slither by the guards. They slither through all the, the soldiers and they go all the way up to the, the special agent in charge is Abner. Abner's Saul's uncle. Abner is the special agent in charge of all the secret service around Saul. Remember they had that, that theological conversation about, hey, look, I'll just take my spear, I put it right through him one time, I won't even stick him twice. He says, no. They took the spear, they took the jug, they slithered right back out, they came to higher ground. And did you hear when I was reading, David cuts loose a, a blood-curdling cry and says, Will you not answer, Abner? He didn't say it once, he was saying it over and over. Will you not answer, Abner? And so Abner, he's asleep. 
All of them are asleep and they come, they're wiping the sleep out of their eyes. And finally he says, who are you who calls to the king? Then, Then David begins to berate Abner. He says, are you not a man? Is there anybody like you in Israel? You, aren't you a man? Abner, listen, I came, there's somebody came into the camp this evening. There's somebody slithered through all the way up to the the king's head. They were at the king's head. They could have killed him. You you should die for not protecting the king. That is the, the penalty of death for you, Abner. The penalty of death for all the soldiers who surrounded the king for not protecting him. And let me make my point really clear. Look for the spear and look for the jug that was right beside the king's head. Can you see him? Where's his jug? Where's his spear? It isn't there. And he holds it up. He's across the gorge. He holds up the spear. He holds up the jug of water. The spear's making the point. I was in your camp last night. I was over the king's head last night. I had the power to take his lights out last night. But I did not do it. Here's the evidence. Here's the evidence. The spear makes the point. There's two things it does. God uses the spear in David's hand to show David he's protected. And God uses spear in David's hand to show him that, that Saul himself has no power. Saul's power's gone. Saul's power is in David's hand. David knows that he will be the king. Saul knows that David will be the king. David knows he's the innocent person. David has the power. Saul has been rendered powerless. Think about it. Think about what Saul has put all his trust in. Put all his trust in Abner. Put all his trust in those men right around him. Put all his trust in his army. 3,000 guys. All the guards, all the rest. He's put his trust in, in the spear. Spear's not in his hand anymore. All his power has been rendered powerless. Kind of remind you of the time when Saul kept trying to get to David and sending all those men and the, all the men started, uh, were, were knocked down, remember? And he, even Saul went to go get David and he is forced to basically uh, prophesy. He stopped. God stopped. God stopped him, rendered him powerless. When history repeats itself, learn how God encourages you. How does he encourage us when we're going through different trials and dilemmas? God reaches out with small tokens of his love and shows us that he's in control and that he cares. Sometimes he encourages us in rather mundane ways. Let me, let me, let me tell you some ways I think that maybe we don't think about. When you get up, get up in the morning and you uh, get your coffee going, does it still smell good? doesn't have to. You ever thought about that? During COVID, sometimes coffee didn't smell so good. Couldn't even smell it. But you get up in the morning, you hear, you, you smell your coffee. It smells good. God, God is good. God's reminding you that he's good. You go out and you work really hard. You do all your stuff. You get to the end of the day and you realize you can pay your bills. You realize you can come to church. You realize you can give money to God. You realize you going through the sheer force of habit and God is driving us along and he's showing us that he cares. These are small things. These are mundane things. All these pains we're going through, all these difficulties that we can't undo, and yet we are still around, we're still moving along. There's things sometimes that are on your mind you can't figure out how to get it solved. 
And so then maybe you wake up like I did, and this is real. I wake up about 2.43. I've learned to keep a piece of paper around and a piece of, and a pen around so that I can go into the schoolroom and write down everything as it's becoming so clear at 2.43 in the morning. And I may not tell anybody about this at work the next day because they'll think it's so mundane and nuts. But I know that it really means something to me because things are really clear now. And it's just a small thing. And sometimes God encourages us in rather dramatic ways. A few years ago, we there's a there's a there's a thing at the uh, Presbyterian of the Northern California and Nevada called the Sierra Christian Camp Association. And my one of my elders in the church there, he was the man over it. I think how long it's been going over fifty years. And so these four men get into Brad DeBoer's big big two F two fifty. Did I get it right? F two fifty. And so he's driving in that big old truck with those those three men, and they're on their way up the mountain, and they are in a terrible truck crash. And I see the pictures. I see the pictures of the other truck that that was their fault down down the side of the mountain. I see the picture of his truck all wadded in a knot. All four of these men, two of them over 80 years of age, all four of these men get out of the truck. All four of them come back home. All four of them show up in church the next day, and it's a dramatic thing they should have crossed the river they shouldn't have been there at church but there they were it was an encouragement uh to me because i really didn't want brad to not be there (laughs) i really wanted these men to stick around a while and they still around it was an encouragement to their family it was encouragement to the church family i read a story about john flavel he wrote a book called the mystery of providence a wonderful book he writes in the book about mrs honeygood Mrs. Honeygood's a very old woman. She's very depressed. She believed that God was going to cast her off. That she, even though he's trying to persuade her that God is not against her but for her, she is absolutely determined that God is going to cast her into hell. So she takes a Venice glass from the table. She said, Sir, I am as sure to be damned as this glass is to be broken. She took the glass. She slammed it in the floor and it did not break. And the preacher looked at her and said, that is a dramatic thing. (laughs) It should have broken into a thousand pieces. This is a dramatic token that God can be trusted. And you and I, we must be encouraged. God's eyes on the sparrow and his eyes on all of those who love him. God's eyes on all of us. God's eye loves us. He loves those who fear him. You know, one of the things I've learned about ravens, you know, the raven fed the prophet Elijah. But did you know that ravens don't even hardly feed their own young? And yet God made that raven and he made him go over and feed the the prophet anyway. And so there's this little baby who's born at Christmas with parents names Joseph and Mary. And there's these guys who bring gold and frankincense and myrrh so that they have enough money to make it to Egypt. You ever thought about it that way? (laughs) They needed money to get there. And God took care of them, and God takes care of us. He gives us encouragement in mundane and dramatic ways. Well, second, when history repeats itself, learn the importance of worship. So we follow the spear makes the point to the fact that Saul is now being raised up from his slumber. Saul is waking up, and in verse 17 he says this, Is that your voice, David, my son? And David says, Yes, it is, my Lord. And so then he says to the king, why does the king look for me like a flea in the mountains? Why does the king look for me like a partridge in the mountains? 
Am I nothing but your servant? I have protected you and considered your life valuable today. I have not reached out my hand against you. What have I done? May God judge between us. In verse 19, he says this. Now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, listen to my word, the words of his servant. Now, listen very carefully. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, David says, let him, let the Lord accept my offering. But if it is men who have stirred you up today, cursed are they before the Lord. For these men have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you're just reading that for the first time, that's, sound, that's what in the world is he saying? Well, let me help you understand, because there's something wonderful here. King Saul is saying, listen, if God, I mean, to, to, to King Saul, David is saying, if God has incited you against me, O king, then I will repent, I will offer a sacrifice, and let it be done. But, O king, if men are pushing you along to search after me and put me to death, let those men be cursed before the Lord, and here is his reason why. Listen to the words again. Your, these men have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord. They're basically saying to me, go serve other gods. David is being forced out of the land of Israel, the place where he has the right to worship God. And he can't be there. It's his inheritance. He's an Israelite. And so when I have to flee out, I have to flee out from Israel into pagan territory. And it's just like I'm being told to serve other gods. Now, you and I know we've studied about David. We know that he knows he can worship anywhere. He can worship on Israel's turf. He can worship in a cave. He prays. He has men around to tell him what the word of God is. He can pray and he can know God out there on the top of the hill over there when he's between he and uh, Saul. He can pray in the midnight hours. But he's so distressed over being deprived of public worship. That's his inheritance. It's his inheritance. He wants to be around the priest. He wants to be around the prophets. And he's being denied public worship in Israel at the tabernacle. And that's what distresses him. At the present moment, no public worship for David. His greatest desire, you can go read what it says in Psalm 27. It's one of his greatest desires to be in the presence of the Lord. You can go read Psalm 84. He wants to be in the presence of the Lord. David knew that God especially revealed himself in public worship, and it distressed him not to be in the public worship where he saw by faith God's love. He saw the glory of God as God as the sacrifices were offered. He saw the forgiveness of God. Does missing public worship cause you distress? Dell Davis writes, David would have been a poor space age evangelical. He would never be content with his study Bible. He would never be content with his prayer list. He would never be content in a cave by himself. He wanted, to be with, he wanted to be in the place of worship with the people who were there to worship. 
Many people today have said all kinds of wrong-headed things about the church. People dismiss the church. People dismiss public worship. People dismiss church membership. It's not important. These things are not important. Vows for membership are not important. These things are just simply not necessary. I've heard people say, well, I can watch the best preachers in the world and I can pray on my own and I can go flip a jig while I'm on Lake Palestine and I can flip jigs and listen to praise and worship music. Church is not important, but it is. And David, David is distressed that he can't be in Israel. He can't be in the very special presence of the Lord and worship. And David's greater son, Jesus Christ, he says this, I will build my church. I will build my assembly of gathered people. Now, we all have to be, we have to face the reality when we get a bunch of people together. And we've had these conversations. I think I probably had this conversation with many of you. When we get together, what do we got? We got sinful people together. Don't, don't, don't say, I might get my feelings hurt. Don't say somebody might sin against me. Friend, somebody will sin against you. <laughs> because uh, we are not perfect people. But we are here to work through these things. We are here, as I tell every person who comes to me for marriage counsel, we are here to learn how to do conflict resolution. We are here, as we said this morning, for Jesus to be born so that God and sinners might be reconciled. That's what this is all about. And so here we are in church. You're in church. Church is the place where disciples are to be made. As imperfect as a people as we are, this is where disciples are made. This is where the preaching takes place. This is where the administration of the sacraments takes place. This is where prayers are offered. This is where congregations get together and elect their own officers called deacons and elders. And why do we elect these men? Well, we elect deacons to come out and do deacon work, right? Deacon work. Y'all heard that one before. What do they do? They do ministry of mercy. And why do we go out and why do we elect officers like elders? So that they can watch over our souls. How can you be watched over by men in a, if there's no important, the church is not important. If there's no church, if we're out flipping jigs and listening to praise and worship music. In the, in the movie Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya. How did, did I say his name right? Inigo, Inigo Montoya. He says this line over and over. He says, my name is Inigo, Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepared to die. Well, friend, if you tell me that being a member of a church is not important, I'm not going to tell you prepare to die, but I'm going to tell you to prepare to lose the argument. If you'll listen, right? If we'll listen... That's part of the deal today. People don't listen anymore. We just, we just, we make up our mind. I used to say, I, I, I sat with a man and I said, sir, why do you never take the Lord's Supper in my church? You always, you always tell me not to because I'm not a member of a church. I said, do you take your Lord's Supper when you go to the other church? He said, I do. But they don't ever say that stuff you say before you serve the Lord's Supper. And so I'm sitting here saying, it's important for you to join the church. God's established today. God's established today where we're supposed to come and worship God. And we should be in distress. We can't be here. If you're providentially hindered, if you're sick, if your car breaks down, we understand that. If you're taking care of a loved one, we got that. But it should distress us not to be with God's people. 
I asked a Wednesday night crowd one time a question, and it was really interesting. I told them, I said, this is not a trick question, so, but here's the question. I, asked, I, I got this from uh, Thomas Watson. Okay, everybody know Thomas Watson, 1600s. But I, I made it, I've I, I refreshed it. I, I put a 2020-something spin on it. When is it wrong to read the Bible? When is it wrong to hear a sermon preached on the Internet or to read a sermon? When is it wrong to pray? When is it wrong to study your Bible? I said, are you stumped? Now, now there ought to be, there's two answers, really. Ever since, you know, for all these years I've thought about this question, I think there's two answers. You really shouldn't be um, uh, studying your Bible if you're supposed to be taking care of the ice, Randy. I mean, you know, if you're supposed to be taking care of, I mean, you really shouldn't be doing Bible and prayer if you're on the computer and doing your work on the computer because you're, you're getting paid to do your work. But here's the question really that I'm getting at. Is there ever really a time that it's wrong? Well, I would say it's wrong to read your Bible when you should be in public worship with the Bible being read there. It's wrong to read a sermon or hear a sermon when you should be hearing your pipsqueak pastor preaching his sermons on Sunday. With me? Right? It's wrong to pray alone when you should be at public worship praying with all the folks at public worship. There's nothing wrong with Bible reading, nothing wrong with reading sermons, nothing wrong with praying on your own, but when you should be at public worship, that's when that's to the side. What kind of appetite do we have for public worship? David does not have the same revelation that we have in the New Testament, but where he lacked in privilege, he did make it up in his appetite for it. And as David was seeing history repeat itself, it was causing him immense distress not to be in Israel, separated from the place where God revealed himself in public worship. What is our appetite when it comes to public worship? Well, finally, before we come to the Lord's Supper, when history repeats itself, learn to hope in God alone. Saul says in verse 21 this, he says, I have sinned. Have we heard that before? First, first uh, Samuel 24. I have sinned. He's, done it. He's doing it again. Here's the next thing. Come back, David, my son. Reconciliation one more time. Let's, let's hug and let's make up. Because you have considered my life precious today, I will not try to harm you again. Here's another promise that he won't throw a spear. But you know, every time he's gone back, he's thrown a spear. He doesn't have a good track record. Saul has proven to be instable or unstable. But a quick evaluation as we think about this repentance on Saul's part, it has all kinds of deficiencies. Many people think, well, he's really sincere this time. He really means business this time. But in his repentance, he leaves God out. He leaves, he leaves out rebellion against God. And so Saul is not to be trusted. And David is very wise. And man, there's some sermons here. I'm going to refrain from getting into this. But David is very wise not to go back across the gorge and give Saul a hug and act like everything's okay. There's got to be trust developed. And that is not going to happen yet. And it won't even happen because eventually Saul is going to go off the scene in death. He says this in verse 22. He says, Behold the spear of the king. Now let one of your young men come over and take it. So he gives it to one of Saul's young men. 
But as for David, what will he do? He will remain with the Lord. He will trust in God alone. Verse 23, the Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life is highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued, not in your sight, O king, but in the sight of the Lord. And may the Lord deliver me from all distress. Not may the king value my life, but may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all my distresses. And so chapter 24 ended, chapter 26 ended, and they end in the same way. Saul goes his way, David goes his way. One goes with prayer, one goes with God, one goes without God, one goes without prayer, one goes with his spear, one goes with his javelin, I mean his jug, but he still goes without God. Tonight, we leave one of two ways. We either leave like Saul or David. Saul goes alone. Saul goes in his sin. Think about it like this. Abishai comes up with a spear. He represents the law. He says, let me stab him to death. He deserves to die for his sin. David represents the gospel. David says, no, give him one more chance. Saul has one more chance, and Saul repents, and his repentance is deficient. And he goes away, drugged and hardened. But David leaves facing uncertainties. But he won't face these uncertainties without being encouraged. He won't face these uncertainties without hungering for public worship. He won't face these uncertainties without totally depending on the Lord. And you and I, we should be encouraged tonight. We should be hungering for public worship. And we should leave totally depending on the Lord. Well, there's one thing we don't have to worry about tonight. David wanted to be in the presence of the Lord, but we are in the presence of the Lord. And we are in this place where he especially meets us. And so we've heard the word preached, and this, this evening we get to enjoy the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And Jesus says this, he says, This is my body, which is broken for you, take, eat, as he spoke the words of institution. He also said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, drink all of it. Um, let me give you four thoughts as we think about the Lord's Supper tonight, just very quickly. Why did Jesus institute this supper? Nourishment. Why does Jesus give us bread and wine, these small elements? Not to nourish our physical bodies, but to give himself to us afresh and anew. He's giving all of himself to us. And you and I, when we receive the bread and the wine with faith in our hearts, we receive the full and perfect nourishment for our souls. Think about that nourishment. Second, bearing witness. This evening when Jesus gives you the bread and the wine, you bear witness against the whole world and your enemies. You profess your faith in Jesus Christ. You profess your love again even as he gives his love to you. You worship and you adore him and you tell the whole world that these people sitting around you are your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Third, now these, these, some, of these, some of these thoughts are coming from Robert Bruce. I, I can't say it better than him. Comfort and consolation. Jesus institutes this supper to serve as a sovereign medicine for all our spiritual diseases. Now, this, these are quotes from him. 
when you find yourself ready to fall. When you find yourself being provoked to fall by the world, the flesh, and the devil. When you find yourself already fallen. When you find yourself on the run from the devil and trying to flee from the very presence of the Lord. In other words, I take that to mean you really may not want to be here tonight. Then God sets before you in his great mercy and compassion the sacrament on a high hill for you who are far away and for you who are near to see it. He uses this sacrament when you're ready to fall or when you've already fallen. Like a mother hen clicking loudly to gather all her chicks underneath her wings. God is the the mother hen who's clucking loudly at this supper, saying, come underneath the wings of my infinite mercy. Come for the consolation tonight. For thanksgiving. This infinite and loving God of ours who clucks loudly on top of the hill, far for some people you feel far away or near, he's loudly clucking for you to come to him. And it ought to make you grateful he loves you he's making sure you see this he's making sure you hear this and for this mercy and this compassion we should be thankful and so tonight jesus invites you his disciples to this table have you professed your faith in jesus have you been baptized are you a member of a church i'm looking out here i know most everybody here right i know all of you are you being taken care of by elders who love you? Have you examined your heart tonight for fresh repentance and faith and obedience? Then come and be nourished, as we said. Come and declare to Jesus you love him just as much as he says he loves you. We never will get close, but we can at least say it with our hearts. We need to come and declare our love for each other. We need to come and Praise God that he calls us to be underneath his loving wings and be thankful as we eat and as we drink tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word today. We see David yearning to be in Israel. We see David yearning to be at the tabernacle where all the different pieces and parts of worship would take place and weeping over the fact that he couldn't be there and let yet lord you are allowing us to be here tonight and we praise you for calling us here tonight for giving us words that we can hear in our ears and receive by faith and for giving us bread and wine tonight that as we receive these pieces of bread and these small cups of wine lord with faith in our hearts we receive all of jesus Lord, may we, may we be strengthened with this nourishment. May we walk away full of gladness and joy as we fellowship with you and one another. We pray that you'll set these elements apart from their common and sacred use. Use them for our good and for your glory. May we eat them in Jesus' name. Amen.